Well, last week was uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and one of the questions that inevitably comes up, at least in my mind after Resurrection Sunday, is we have this wonderful celebration as a family, we have people into our home, it's a, it's a big day on the calendar in the Krupp home, uh, but then Monday morning the question is, now what? I mean, we know Christ is returning, we know there's things to do, but now what? After that big Resurrection Sunday celebration, what next? And I want to take you to a passage this morning that answers that question of what next, uh, but before it gives us the what next, it lays an important foundation for helping us understand what comes next based on our new identity in Christ. You see, in salvation, we not only receive pardon from our sins, we receive a new identity as God's beloved children, and we're going to look at that this morning. And uh, that actually brings up by implication one of the big threats that we face in Christianity. If someone were to ask you what's the most significant threat to Christianity in this generation, in this nation, what would you say? You might be tempted to say, well, it's the rising tide of secularism, uh, right, that causes people to lead lives that are functionally atheistic. It's not just that philosophic atheism is on the rise, it's that even within the church, this, this spirit of secularism in our culture tempts even those of us in the church to treat God's existence as if it's not that relevant to how we should live and we can just kind of do our own thing. There's this functional atheism on the rise, and it affects even those of us in the church. Or maybe you would say the biggest threat is much more simple than that. It's one that's been around with us, certainly as Americans, for a number of generations now. It's simply straightforward. It's just materialism. It's just the materialism and the self-indulgence of American culture. We entertain ourselves to death. We act like having pleasurable experiences and owning nice things is really the, the main goal of life, and that influences us in the church. Even in the church, there are times where we would say we believe in storing up treasure in heaven, but the theology we actually live out appears more to be, let's eat, drink, and be merry. Or maybe you would say, no, 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 the biggest threat to the church in our generation is just, it's just uh, the open immorality that's celebrated in our culture. I mean, you can hardly turn on the TV or go to the mall, or go on the internet, or watch a movie without your morals being assaulted. And so, morality, immorality is a big problem. And uh, what I would say in response to all those is, those are certainly threats to Christianity. I, I certainly wouldn't want to trivialize any of those problems that we face at all. But as you read the New Testament letters, let me ask you this. As you read the apostles writing their letters to the church in the first century, does it appear to you that the apostles think the big threats are inside or outside of the church? In other words, are the apostles constantly warning their readers about the ills of Greco-Roman society and the corruption of Roman sexual morals? Or are they warning people about false teachers in the church? See, I would say, based on my reading, it's the latter. It's the second thing. They're warning about threats that arise from within. The biggest threats to the church in every generation, in every location of church history, have been people who call themselves Christians but become members of the Christian community but are false teachers. And the biggest threat to individual Christians is just the desires that lead us astray that still well up within our own hearts. And so, 
there is this danger, and the danger I want to focus in on this morning is this. There's a danger that Paul Tripp would call identity amnesia. We live very busy lives full of responsibilities, and in the rush of uh, getting an education and working a career, and if you have a family, all that comes with having a family, uh, and volunteering to help other people, even good things like being involved in the local church, uh, as you get involved in all of those things, it's still possible to forget that in salvation, we were all given a new identity. But when you forget your new identity as a child of Christ, as a beloved child of God, what you'll start doing is looking for your identity horizontally in other created things. You'll be tempted to find your identity, perhaps, in education. Education is an important experience. It prepares you for adult life and for a career, but it's an experience, not an identity. Uh, If you're a parent, you may be tempted to find your identity in parenting. And we need to say to that, children are a blessing from God, and raising them is an important and weighty responsibility. But if you make being a parent, being the best dad or the world's best mom, into your identity, what will happen is that when your last child leaves, you won't just have the difficulty of that transition into the empty nest years, which is a difficult transition, certainly, but on top of that, you will feel a deep sense of lostness and emptiness because while your children were in the home, you were getting something from them that they were never designed to give you. Uh, In our current cultural moment, I believe one of the things that tempts us uh, in this issue of identity would be the therapeutic community and the way that the therapeutic community is discipling and influencing people to find their identity in their sufferings or in their trauma. Now, hear me out on this. I wouldn't want to do anything to trivialize the suffering or traumas you've been through because they do leave a mark on you. They, they, uh, they do have an impact, but they are experiences, not identities. They don't define the essence of who you are in your inner being. And if you allow a trauma, uh, like being the child, you know, uh, I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. Well, that was a bad experience, but that's not an identity. Or here's another one. Uh, being diagnosed, have, being prone to and being di- diagnosed with a clinical case of depression, that is a hard struggle. But depression is not an identity. And if you make your suffering or your trauma into an identity, it will harm you because it will lead you away from finding your identity as a child of God. And so we're going to study a passage today. Uh, it's in 1 Peter. Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 9 and 10. And uh, before I read the passage, I just want to alert you to the fact that over and over again in the letter of 1 Peter, Peter keeps reminding the readers about who they are, and then based on who they are, he tells them what their mission is and what their function is in the world. And so, what we're going to see in these two verses is uh, five interrelated markers of our identity, and then one very special function we serve in the world based on that identity. Let's read the text together. I'm going to start back in 1 Peter 2 verse 4 just for the sake of context. In uh, 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4, Peter says, 
And coming to Him, that is Jesus, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed." This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the Word, and to this doom they were appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our text for today is just verses 9 and 10 of the paragraph I read, and they are an incredibly dense explanation of what the church is and what it means to be a Christian. And I like to liken these verses to uh, a good slice of deep dish pizza. Uh, My favorite kind of pizza is deep dish pizza. And if you've ever had Chicago-style deep dish pizza from Uno's or Douay's or Giordano's, you know that one piece will not only fill you up, it might even make you sick. It's incredibly dense, right? So deep dish pizza, it's not one of those pizzas that you got to eat five slices just to fill up, right? And that's what we've come to this morning in these verses. Uh, you, you don't need five slices to fill you up. There's a whole lot here. It's dense. It's rich. It's full of good spiritual nutrients. And so I'm just going to spend one sermon just on these two verses because of how thick they are. And what they communicate in essence is this. The New Testament church has taken on the mission of Old Testament Israel. The church is like a new Israel, if you will, in the sense of continuing a mission that Old Testament Israel had, and yet not in a way that replaces Old Testament Israel. God still has a plan for the Jewish people. There are still prophecies He made to the nation of Israel that haven't been fulfilled, that will be fulfilled in the end times. And so He hasn't replaced Israel. But for now, for this season of redemptive history, the church is fulfilling a function in the world that Israel did have in the Old Testament. And Peter begins verse 9 with the connecting word and contrasting word, but. In contrast to those people in verses 7 and 8 who uh, don't believe in Jesus, who reject Him, in contrast to them, y'all are a chosen race. So if you look at the beginning of verse 9, there there is a a contrast and a connecting word used. We're going to have a a new subject, and you see the words, but you. Now, in English, this is my big beef with the English language. In English, when you see the word you, you don't know if it's you singular or you plural. Now, because what follows is being a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation, right, and a nation needs lots of people, not just one person. I think intuitively we all know it's you plural. Okay, I get that. But it is frustrating to me that in English, when we translate the New Testament into English, we use the word you, and we don't know whether it's singular or plural. And so I'm going to start the Y'all Bible Project. I'm going to create a Bible translation, and in the South, we're going we're to market it as the Y'all Bible. In the West, it'll just be the You All Bible. And in the Northeast, it's going to be the use guys version. 
And that's what we're going to do, okay? So this, this is my big plan, the Chris Krupp study Bible. There's not even going to be that many notes in it, okay? But, but it'll be clear whether it's you plural or, you're, or you singular. And, and here's the thing. I say that not just uh, for you as an English-speaking audience. I say that not just because it would be more grammatically correct for us to understand, because Hebrew and Greek make it crystal clear whether it's a you singular or a you plural. The, the original biblical languages don't have this problem. Uh, not only would it be more grammatically correct, it would actually address a particular problem we have in American Christianity, and that is our individualism. Due to our individualism, there is this ever-present danger of turning Christianity into an individual, privatized, Jesus and me kind of Christianity. But the problem with that, if you read the New Testament, is that Christianity is a team sport. It's a collective faith. It's a religion with a whole bunch of relationships with other people that we need to have in order to be effective. You can't live the Christian life on your own. Uh, you have to have relationships. Uh, the whole Christian life is designed as something you do with the people of God, and your spiritual health and fruitfulness depends on how well you live out your interconnectedness and dependence on other people who are Christians. But in our individualism, we can easily approach the church like a consumer, and we begin to view the church as a place where we go that gives us an experience once a week uh, during a worship service. And what we do is we evaluate the worship service based on what we get out of it. And I would say to that, yes, it's true that the Sunday morning worship service is the single most important meeting that a church family has during the week. Uh, yes, that's very important. But a church family is not just about the worship service on Sunday morning. It's about being a meaningfully involved member who knows other people and is known by them, who gives and receives love and comfort and help and accountability and good counsel, uh, who serves and is served by the body. And so we dare not miss the collective language Peter is going to use here when he talks about our identity as Christians. And so I would just stop here at this point and ask you as your pastor, pastor, are you living a privatized Jesus and me Christianity where you've built a huge boundary between your private life and your public persona? What other Christians know you? What other Christians do you work with to be more effective for Christ? You've been called to become part of a participant in a family of God through being meaningfully involved in relationships and service in a local church. And there are new identities you've obtained through Christ. First of all, you are now part of a chosen race. Now, with all the racial tension in our country, I think that uh, Peter's timing is perfect for us, even though he wrote this a long time ago. And uh, what Peter is doing here is he's looking back to the Old Testament, and he is using, the, in Greek, the, the words that he's using for race it harkens back to an Old Testament word that was used to describe Israel as God's chosen people. They were a chosen race of descendants through Abraham, through Jacob. And uh, when the rabbis translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, which was the lingua franca of the time when they translated it, when they did that, they used the same language Peter uses here when they translated Isaiah chapter 43, where God describes Israel as a race, 
he has formed to declare his praise. And they were supposed to declare his praise not only with their words and their music and the worship they, they did in the temple, they were also supposed to be declaring his praise through living righteous lives and being a righteous nation. And you know they didn't live up to that, and that's one of the reasons God disciplined them with the Babylonian captivity. But, but that was the design of the whole thing. And Peter is now taking that idea and making the claim here that if you believe in Christ, whether you're a Jew or a Roman or a Greek or a barbarian or an American, uh, if you are uh, in Christ, you have now been born again, and you are part of a chosen spiritual race who exists to glorify God. Red and yellow, black and white are precious ethnic distinctives, but they are not our essential identity as Christians. No Christian should be ashamed of their God-given ethnicity, uh, but those ethnicities are no longer the essence of our identities. And so, the idea here is this, and, and, and look, race and ethnicity run deep, okay? That's, uh, I'm not trying to take that away from you, uh, but the idea here is that over time, you would begin to feel like you have more in common with a Christian from a dif different ethnicity than someone from your own ethnicity but who rejects Christ. That's, that's the goal. That's what Peter is pointing at here. Now, to be clear about this, and this is something I, 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 I'm convinced of, uh, based on, you know, seminary, being a pastor, interacting with God's Word, I have been forced over the years to read extensively in ancient history, and particularly Roman and Greek history. And I would submit to you that back when Peter wrote this, there wasn't less racial tension. I think there was actually more than in our day. Peter is very aware of what he's doing here. He's very aware of the emotions his words will produce in his audience and of the obstacles and arguments that they're going to run up against. And, one of, and that's because one of the most fundamental forms of identity people have is their ethnic identity. But Peter is saying, look, your new identity in Christ, it runs even deeper than that identity, right? Uh, so, your deepest solidarity now needs to be with God's people. You've been chosen by God to be part of a new people group, if you will, who are alive to God. You're different now, and you're different together as a new spiritual race uh, set apart against the rest of humanity. And then there's a way in which the next three phrases Peter uses define what it means to be this chosen race. The first is that we are also a royal priesthood. And what Peter is doing now is he's tapping into the covenant language God used uh, and communicated through Moses to Israel in the Mosaic law. In Exodus 19, uh, God said this to national Israel, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my co covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, back in verse 5 of this very chapter we're in, uh, Peter said that we are living stones being built up into a spiritual temple to God, but we're not just the stones. He also said we're the priests who are in the temple offering sacrifices to God. And as priests, we have been called to a life of sacrifice, a life of sacrifice where we willingly offer up our, our time and our strengths and our gifts and our relationships and our possessions to serve God. 
That means we don't use our free time only in self-indulgent ways. Of course, Christians can have recreation and downtime and leisure activities. Yes, of course. But we don't use all our downtime just on ourselves. Uh, We don't use all of our money just the way that we would choose. We offer up our homes. We don't just use our homes as a place where we can be comfortable. We use our homes to uh, to, to practice hospitality and use the home then as a base of operations for building fellowship and community with other Christians and having non-Christians over as part of gospel outreach. And so, even our homes become a platform from which we do ministry, not just a place we retreat to to be comfortable. Like Abraham, we also offer up our children to God, confessing that they don't belong to us. They don't exist for our happiness. We're not trying to make them into little clones of ourselves or relive our lives through them or enhance our reputation in the community through them. They don't belong to us. They belong to God, and we offer them up to Him. You see, I say all these things, brothers and sisters, because if we're priests, we have to reckon with what that means for our daily lives. And one of the things that's tempting as an American Christian is to think of our lives as our own, to think it's my life, but because I'm such a good person, I step out of my life a couple times a week to help God with His kingdom. But that's actually a very unhealthy way to think of the Christian life. Uh, Our lives are not our own. We are priests, and we've been called to make daily sacrifices for the purpose of serving God. And notice the adjective Peter uses to describe our priesthood. It is a royal priesthood. Uh, That points to the fact that there's a king. We we serve a king uh, in our priesthood. We're set apart for service to the king of kings. And one of the comforting things that means, one of the privileges that that has with it is that it also means we're now part of the king's household. You see, for hundreds of years, the people of Israel were separated from the presence of God. Only certain priests from the tribe of Levi could go into the temple, and then only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and he could only go in once a year. But when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple, the 30-foot veil in the temple that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies, it was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that we now can enter God's presence through Christ. We now have access to God through Christ, and God has become our Heavenly Father. So, we are a chosen race and a royal priesthood who has become part of the King's household. We are also called to be here a holy nation. Now, many people in many countries of the world, they're proud of their country. They, they, they celebrate their country. They have holidays where they celebrate uh, the greatest achievements and the greatest victories of their nation. But you are part now of a new nation. I know how deep your commitment runs to the American flag, apple pie, and baseball. And I'm not trying to take any of those things away from you, but I do want to inform you, you're part of a new nation now, right? I understand that for you as an American, 
the American landings at D-Day have taken on mythic proportions in your mind. But as great as that victory was for the free peoples of the world, that victory was not as glorious as the victory Christ won on the cross. We're part of a new nation now, and that has to become part of uh, our new loyalties. And I, I confess, it does create the problem of having dual citizenship, right? We are citizens uh, of uh, the kingdom of America. We need to pay our taxes, right? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We have responsibilities there, but we're also part of a, a new nation. Uh, and it is a nation that is meant to be holy, which means we're supposed to be set apart in our service and loyalty to God, but it also means we're supposed to be set apart more. We're supposed to be set apart from evil and walk in the commandments that Christ commands. So, we are part of a new nation. It's a holy nation, and that reminds us of our responsibility. The word holy reminds us of our responsibility to grow in sanctification. The text says we are also God's special possession, and that needs some clarification. Although the whole world and everything in it belongs to God, the nation of Israel was uh, God's special possession. And now, like Israel of old, we are a people who are God's special possession in the world. Uh, the Greek word that Paul uses here for possession, it means a, a special possession someone had that was purchased with a price. And uh, Paul describes it this way. He uses this same word when he writes to Titus. He says, Jesus Christ gave Himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good works. We have been made a special possession of God by being bought with the precious blood of Christ. And uh, this is actually a very important argument in the flow of Paul's letter because he's talking to people who are facing persecution. And it would be very natural to look at what Peter's saying and say, well, look, Peter, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I'm not, I'm not trying. To, I know you're an apostle. I'm not trying to argue with you. But look, I don't count in the Roman world, in society. And this, I have no status. And it can feel like I don't count to God. And Peter would say to that, no, 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 you're precious in God's sight, and you serve a crucial function in the world. Now, that crucial function you serve is not something the world is going to thank you for, but it is something that God is going to reward you for in the end. If you're in Christ, you're part of God's special people, and you're a special possession to Him. So, your heavenly Father would wrap you up in His arms and say, you're mine. I love you. I know you haven't been as successful as you wanted to be in this world, but you're mine. Uh, I know your life has been hard because you live in a sin-cursed world, but you're mine. I know the people that you've loved in some cases have hurt you or abandoned you, but you're mine, and I will never abandon you. I'm guiding through you through life, and soon I'll take you home to be with me. You all, if you are in Christ, are a royal uh, priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's special possession. That's your new identity. And then look at verse 10. Uh, Peter says, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You once had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. And the, the point I just would want to make quickly in verse 10 is to say that this is all happening by God's mercy. We didn't earn becoming part of this royal priesthood. Candidly, we didn't deserve it. 
Uh, it's not by our own doing. It's only through the mercy of God, which means that, uh, it, that in God's kingdom, in, in this new nation that we're all a part of now, there's no bragging rights, right? There's no bragging. There's no, there's no boasting. So, um, in eternity future, if I were to brag that uh, uh, I graduated from seminary, right? I mean, that's a spiritual achievement. Uh, if I were to brag that I uh, uh, graduated from seminary, or if I were to brag that I was a pastor for X number of years, I'd get laughed out of the room because we'll all understand then that there's no boasting in God's kingdom. It was all of great. It was only by God's mercy that I got to do those things, right? In fact, I should probably get laughed out of the room now but we're still all in the middle of the process of our own sanctification, and we don't always think clearly. But a day is coming when we will all clearly understand, look, this is all of God's mercy. I couldn't have done anything to deserve this or achieve this. Um, we who are in Christ are a privileged people spiritually who have become a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's special possession, but we don't deserve to be a part of it. This was an unearned privilege that's only by God's mercy. Now, being this uh, chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, that's our identity. And once you understand your identity, it becomes, it can become almost intuitive, natural to kind of figure out even on your own what your function is in the world, but we, we're not left to do that. Peter actually tells us what our function is here. He's very explicit about it, and he does it with a purpose clause. Uh, and by purpose clause, I mean the word so that. And you can see that. Look in verse 9. He says, so that. You've, you have this new identity. Why has God set you apart as a holy nation? Why have we received this mercy? Answer, verse 9, so that you all may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. So, we exist to proclaim the excellencies of God who has shown us mercy. And in this phrase, or really the last half of verse 9, there's actually a whole course on evangelism because what Peter says here, it answers the what and the how of how we go about proclaiming His mercies. First of all, the what. In monumental contrast to the atheistic worldviews like Marxism and, and secular humanism and postmodernism, in contrast to those worldviews, we don't proclaim an ideology. We don't even proclaim, first and foremost, a theology, even though theology is important. We don't proclaim either a system of redemption. What we proclaim is a redeemer. We proclaim, first and foremost, a person. Now, you know this. Uh, I love the principles of Scripture. I love the theology of Scripture. There is content we need to preach when we teach the gospel. But there is a sense in which we can also say, and we need, we need to be reminded of this, uh, of this every now and then, the gospel is a person. The gospel is all about Jesus Christ. It's all about His person and the work He's done uh, to offer salvation. Um, and so, uh, and, and here's another clarification we should make. If all we needed was an ideology or a certain theology to believe in or a system of redemption, Christ wouldn't have had to die on our behalf. And so, first and foremost, we proclaim a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the what. But if you pan back and you look at the broader picture of First Peter, you'll also see the how. How is it that we go about proclaiming His excellencies? Well, uh, we proclaim Him with good works in 1 Peter 2.12, and we proclaim Him with our words, 1 Peter 3.15. 
Now, giving Bible references never sanctified anybody. So let me read those two references so that you understand what I'm talking about. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among uh, the, the Gentiles, those who don't believe in Christ, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. By excellent behavior, we put our actions where our mouth is right? We talk about put your money where your mouth is. We put our actions, our theology, where our mouth is, because what you do teaches, particularly when the people around you know that you're a Christian. But we don't just adorn the gospel we believe in with our good works. We do at some point actually have to open our mouths. We have to speak up at some point, and Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 3, 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give uh, an account for the hope that is in you. So, we should be ready to reason with other people about why we've chosen to follow Jesus and why we think they should do so too. We should be able to do that. And one of the ways you do that, beloved, is by telling your story. You have a story to tell. You have a story to tell about how you became aware that you really were a sinner and God really was just to condemn you. Uh, You have a story to tell about how you became convinced of the realities of death and judgment and your need for a Savior. You have a story to tell about which, uh, which scripture, scripture verses brought conviction on you and showed you your need for Jesus. And you proclaim Him not only by adorning the gospel with good works, but also sharing your story and making sure as you share your story that it includes the content of the gospel. We exist to make the excellencies of God known in our world. And it's not enough to do justice. It's, I'm not doing justice to this passage if I only preach about our identity, right? Because this passage also explains our function in the world and why God has left us here. But it does lead us back, even, even looking at why God left us here, it does lead us back to the beginning of this message. We've been given a, br- a great privilege of being God's special possession, and we're supposed to proclaim His excellencies. But if you forget your identity in Christ, you'll start looking to find your identity horizontally, and a number of things will happen. First of all, sin will become more seductive. Second, the delusion of your own self-sufficiency will become more plausible to you, and, and, and an individualistic, privatized Jesus and me kind of Christianity will become more natural for you which means that remembering our new identity in Christ is important. In the press of life, it can become very easy to forget that we are now, through Christ, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we can proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Let's pray.